0: If you would like to take your Bibles and turn with me to our text this Lord's Day, you can do so by turning with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, and we'll be reading through verse 33. 1 Kings 12.26 There we read, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel." Which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered Upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. In the last sermon, dealing with the National Covenant, that is the Solemn League and Covenant, we considered the specific language that was used in various official documents of both church and state, wherein all the posterity to which the Solemn League and Covenant extended were identified as, quote, in all His Majesty's dominions. End of quote. Let me add a couple more brief citations from the journals of the House of Commons and the House of Lords of England before looking at our text for this Lord's Day. Carefully observe how the Parliament of England ties together both religion and and the liberty of British subjects in all His Majesty's dominions upon the grounds of the Solemn League and Covenant. First of all, from the Parliament of England to the Parliament of Scotland. There we read, My Lords, the Parliament of England taking notice that the time of the sitting of your Parliament draws near, do esteem it a happy opportunity to express the great obligation they owe to the Kingdom of Scotland, which hath so effectually engaged itself in this common cause, wherein religion and the liberty of the subject in all His Majesty's dominions are so much concerned, and we hope through the blessing of God will become a powerful means for the settling His Majesty's dominions in peace and unity according to the grounds of the late Solemn League and Covenant. That's from the House of Lords, um, May the twenty. 5th, 1644. Next, listen to the response from the Parliament of Scotland to the Parliament of England, wherein the Parliament of Scotland reciprocates by summarizing their duty in the Solemn League and Covenant to settle truth and religion with a firm peace in all His Majesty's dominions. So this is the letter from the Parliament of Scotland to the Parliament of England. And as the chiefest design and greatest hopes of the enemies has been in the division of these kingdoms, so it is the constant resolution of this kingdom, namely that of Scotland, inviably to observe their union and covenant, that is the Solemn League and Covenant, with their brethren that against all opposition the truth of religion may be settled and with a firm peace in all his majesty's dominions, and that amity or friendship betwixt these kingdoms may be perpetuated to all posterity. That's from the House of Lords, August 12, 1644. Finally, before considering our text, listen to the instructions. This has nothing to do with the Solemn League and Covenant, but again, I mentioned this because of the use of the phrase in all His Majesty's Dominions. If we can see how it's used in other contexts by the Parliament, then it should be again consistently used, that same phrase, when it applies to the Solemn League and Covenant. This is a interesting piece of uh, uh, legislation uh, from the House of Lords, uh, April the fifth, sixteen forty three. This is directed to the chief naval officer of Britain, and in effect, not only to he's he's commanded not only to protect the coasts of England and Ireland, but to protect the coast of all other of His Majesty's dominions as well. Notice what it says here. Instructions for the Earl of Warwick, Commander-in-Chief at sea. You are therefore hereby required and fully authorized in case you meet with any foreign forces, ships, or vessels, as Spaniards, French, Danes, Dunkirkers, or any other whatsoever, making towards the coasts of England, Ireland, or any other of his majesty's dominions, that you shall, according to the usual manner, command them to strike their flags or top sails, and shall cause them to be examined and searched, whether they have any soldiers, arms, ammunition, or other provisions for war in them and you and all commanders, officers, soldiers, and mariners obeying your command in this service, for the safety of the Parliament, this Kingdom, and the Kingdom of Ireland, and all other His Majesty's dominions, shall for your and their indemnity be protected by the authority of the said Houses of Parliament. Now, is there any question in anyone's mind that that, that particular uh, command and act was directed to three or four dominions, that it didn't include uh, all of the dominions under the crown of Britain, that that would be uh, applicable? It, uh, there ought not to be any question as to, again, uh, what's in view there. Unless in the specific context That act is limited by certain words that would help us to realize that only applies to all the dominions in this particular location or this particular part of the world. Otherwise, when it says England, Ireland and all his other dominions, all his majesty's other dominions, that we would understand that to be all-inclusive. Now, two points... Uh, ought to be clear from these citations and those from the last sermon that uh, were cited. First of all, the solemn league and covenant was viewed by the churches and parliaments of England and Scotland as extending to all His Majesty's dominions. And second, all His Majesty's dominions ought not to be limited to three or four dominions. But unless specifically qualified by the context, as we just said, they ought to be extended uh, to all those colonies, plantations, or provinces within the British Empire over which the crown of Britain exercised dominion. Now later in the sermon we shall see that the colonies in America are clearly called His Majesty's Dominions. Therefore, they must be viewed, by way of anticipation at this point, they must be viewed as the posterity that were included in the solemn league and covenant. In the last sermon, we noted from Deuteronomy 29, that even when the twelve tribes of Israel were judged by the Lord for their flagrant and persistent covenant-breaking, And scattered throughout all the nations of the world, the national covenant between God and Israel was not terminated. Israel may be a covenant-breaking nation, but they cannot terminate the covenant themselves. They may break the covenant, but they can't end the covenant if it's made with God. They could sin against the covenant, but only God, the covenant keeper, the one who is the innocent party against whom the covenant is uh, violated, only he can end the covenant and terminate the covenant. The guilty party is not allowed to terminate a covenant. If the innocent party, and particularly in this case God, says that the covenant will continue and covenants, all covenants made with him national covenants made with him he will not terminate there is no evidence for that we see just the contrary evidence in the word of God that the covenant continues to all posterity through all succeeding generations A covenanted nation may aggravate its sin of covenant breaking by its obstinate rebellion against the most gracious God who continues to extend his arms in mercy and grace calling that nation that has fallen away from him to come back to him. But it cannot force the everlasting God to end a covenant. He has made with that nation because that national covenant that's made with that nation is made with all of its posterity in all succeeding generations. It's not simply made with that particular generation that is then alive, but with all succeeding generations. All succeeding generations of that nation and of that posterity are viewed as one moral person. And that's true wherever the people of that nation may relocate to. And it's true under whatever political system or identity that they may exist subsequently, as we shall see from our text. Now consider with me how, from our text, consider with me how the ten tribes of Israel (laughs) declared their independence from the United Twelve Tribes that previously existed and established their own national covenant and constitution in violation of the national covenant and constitution established with God at Mount Sinai. Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which consisted of the Ten Tribes it was discussed in a previous sermon that the ten tribes declared their independence from the national entity with which they were previously joined so that they de facto became a new political entity that did not previously exist earlier. Since the cause and results Of this national division were thoroughly discussed in a previous sermon. I'm not going to focus our attention upon that at this particular time. Rather, I'm going to focus my attention on on what occurred thereafter. Our text relates how Jeroboam was perplexed as to how to maintain the loyalty of his people and the unity of his newly formed nation. He knew that if the people were allowed to maintain the same national covenant and the same national religion that had been established at Mount Sinai, the loyalty of the people would drift back to King Rehoboam and the throne of David, which would eventuate in reuniting the the kingdom under twelve tribes, or with consisting of twelve tribes, that original kingdom as it previously existed. Notice what we find in 1 Kings 12:26 through 27. And Jeroboam said in his heart, "Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem." Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Out of the cunning of his own corrupt heart, and by means of a worldly wisdom, Jeroboam devised a plan to keep his political children near to their political father and home. He would essentially change the previous national covenant made with all of Israel, namely the 12 tribes at Mount Sinai, by establishing a new religion. The 10 tribes of Israel would still worship Jehovah by name, but they would do so by the means Jehovah, uh, not by the means established by Jehovah at Mount Sinai in their national covenant. So Jeroboam made images representing Jehovah, places to worship rather than the temple in Jerusalem, a new priesthood, from the common and ordinary people. Now, that should, have, that should uh, really appeal since we're so much into uh, those types of rites today, the common and ordinary. That's what Jeroboam did. He said, the priesthood is not now any longer uh, that which belongs to a particular lineage, but everybody, the common and ordinary people can be priests within my new kingdom. And he also established new feasts that compared to those established by God in the covenant at Mount Sinai, but not the same feasts. Look with me again at what Jeroboam did, beginning with verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. Notice which he had made, not which God had ordained. Verse 33. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month, notice these words, which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Jeroboam established will worship as the religion of this new nation. A religion which, according to 1 Kings 12.33, he had devised of his own heart. The civil magistrate is bound to establish, as being the minister of God to thee for good, the civil magistrate is bound to establish the one true religion revealed in God's holy word, and not one, Devised of his own heart. A church is likewise bound to worship God with that worship that has God's own approval and is likewise bound to worship God with that worship that is prescribed alone in his word and not by the creativity or invention of man which simply becomes another form of making our own Images of gold, like Jeroboam made the calves of gold. Though we still profess with our lips, as did Israel, to worship the same God. Just as God hated the adulterated worship of Jeroboam and the ten tribes, as he states he does in Amos 5.21, so the Lord still hates worship that is offered to him which he has not authorized to bring to him, for he is the same holy God that changes not. Now, although this newly formed nation of Israel, the ten tribes, had declared de facto as that which actually happened, They declared de facto their independence from the mother nation of which they had been a part, that is, the United Kingdom of Israel consisting of the twelve tribes, and had even written a new constitution that declared de facto, as that which actually happened, they actually did this, their independence from the national covenant made at Mount Sinai, they could not, listen to this now, very important, they could not terminate the jury as that which lawfully happened. As that which lawfully happened, they could not terminate the lawful national covenant made with God at Mount Sinai. De facto they did so, de jure, they could not do so. And thus, the new kingdom of Israel had the being of a nation, but not the well being of a nation, because it had formed an unlawful constitution that was contrary to the national covenant previously established with them by God and with all of their posterity at Mount Sinai. Even after declaring their independence, And even after having written a new constitution, note that God continues to demonstrate that they are still His covenanted people. De jure. They may not act like it. They may even not profess it by way of their new constitution and and, uh, ignoring, neglecting, despising that original covenant made with God. But they are by covenant and by law still His people notice what we find in 1st kings 16 verses 1 through 3 then the word of the lord came to jehu the son of hanani against baasha saying for as much as i exalted thee out of the dust and made thee prince over my people israel That's covenantal language. My covenanted people of Israel, even though they had departed, even though they had uh, uh, um, written their own constitution, separated themselves from the mother country, God still says that he appointed Baasha to be king over his people. That is, he ordained it providentially. Not that he was ordained... Uh, preceptively, not that he was uh, a lawful magistrate as to well-being, but that he was yet ordained providentially. God brought him up to serve in that capacity over his people, Israel. Likewise, uh, in second Kings, chapter 17 where the northern kingdom the ten tribes are dispersed shattered led into captivity for their flagrant persistent rebellion against their covenant God we see again that even at that time when God disperses them scatters them for their covenant breaking that they remain his covenant people We read in 2 Kings 17, 14, and 15, these words, Notwithstanding, they would not hear, that is, uh, the ten tribes of Israel would not hear, but hardened their necks, like to the neck of their fathers, that they did not believe in the Lord their God, the Lord their God, again, their covenant-keeping God, And they rejected his statutes, and what else did they reject? And his covenant that he made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he testified against them, and they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. As we noted in the last sermon, even while in captivity, God calls Israel His covenanted people. They cannot end the covenant. They may violate, they may break, but they only aggravate their sins because the covenant remains. This truth, dear ones, has a wonderful application to us and our covenant children. Who have, our covenant children, who have been given in their baptism the sign of God's covenant and have in that sign been given the promise of God that He will be their God. Now, though that covenant relationship has been established externally, as with Israel of old, with our covenant children. We pray that the promises made to our covenant children might be received in faith by them so that they might know the Lord, their God, internally. Not merely by way of some external covenant alone, but know Him internally by God's sovereign grace. Dear ones, as we remember that Israel of old sought to live by entirely different rules than God had given to them. So our children may seek to do the same and live by entirely different rules than God has given to them. God, however, encourages us to pray for our children, even our wayward children, pleading the covenant and the promises made unto them externally. Externally that they might be internally realized in their lives by saving faith alone in Jesus Christ. You see, that covenant is a precious, precious ordinance, an incentive, an encouragement, and hope for us to continue to pray for our children. And if God will restore as he will, his ancient people of Israel, though they have even crucified their own Messiah who came to them, though they hated and despised him, and yet God will restore his ancient people Israel. There is hope for all of our covenant children in Jesus Christ. The second main point, having looked at our text Now, our second main point, we now turn to the colonies and plantations established in North America where we're going to apply these truths. Dear ones, if God established his covenant with England, Ireland, and Scotland and all their posterity in succeeding generations, and in all his majesty's dominions, as we have demonstrated previously, does that covenant relationship cease when the posterity relocates to America, Canada, or elsewhere? Absolutely not. In fact, God moves a covenanted people to other places in the world in order that his gracious covenant might extend to include more and more people under its banner, under its gracious banner. Does the fact that the colonies previously bound by the solemn league and covenant as his majesty's dominions The colonies declared their independence from Britain mean that they can declare their independence from God as his covenant people? Granted, they can declare their independence from Britain. They did declare their independence from Britain. De facto, they did that. But can they de jure by law, by covenant, can they declare their independence from God himself? Simply on their own, unilaterally. Blasphemy, I would suggest, even suggest such a thing. Let us now consider evidence demonstrating that the colonies were His Majesty's dominions and were thus entitled to all of the privileges and rights (coughs) of those living in England. And I would suggest to you the greatest privilege and the greatest right granted to any living in England was to be owned as the children of God by covenant, by way of a national covenant. The various dominions, colonies, and plantations established by the crown of Britain were subjects of the crown and were established with legal documents called charters. All of the colonies were established by means of these legal documents called charters. A charter was a civil contract or covenant between the king and his subjects wherein the king pledged his power to uphold their lawful rights as they continued to be his lawful subjects. It was thereafter referred to as a dominion of the crown. After that charter was established, that particular entity was referred to as a dominion, a colony, a plantation of the crown or one of his majesty's dominions. Now, we're not going to cite all of the charters of the, all of the colonies uh, today. Um, uh, that would extend the sermon quite exponentially. However, the charters that are cited, I'm going to cite three charters. I believe that they are uh, clearly representative of the same language that is used in the other charters, all of the other charters, the other nine that refer to the other colonies. We're going to note that not only, not only are in these charters, are the people within these colonies called His Majesty's Dominions, but they are also said to, Receive and to enjoy the same liberties, rights, and privileges that belong to those living in England and so that, again, these two ideas, they're His Majesty's Dominion and they're entitled to all the same rights, privileges that those in England themselves have. Now I ask, what greater liberty, right, or privilege could a civil charter establish with a colony than to be in covenant with God, the Most High God? Can you think of something higher or greater than to be in covenant with God by way of a national covenant? There could not possibly be a more exalted or glorious liberty, right, or privilege than to be thus legally adopted as the national children of God by way of a national covenant. Thus, if Britain was in covenant with God by way of the solemn and covenant, which it was, And if this was the noblest and highest honor, right, and privilege that Britain could have, which it was, then the charters establishing colonies of Britain in North America and elsewhere, which granted to these colonies under the dominion of the crown the liberties, rights, and privileges of those living in Britain itself, it must include the highest liberty, the greatest liberty, right, and privilege, that of being in covenant with God via the National Solemn League and Covenant. First of all, the first charter of Virginia, 1606. Listen to this uh, paragraph. And we, that is the crown of England, do for us, our heirs and successors, Declare by these presents that all and every the persons being our subjects which shall dwell and inhabit within every or any of the said several colonies and plantations, and every of their children which shall happen to be born within any of the limits and precincts of the said several colonies and plantations, shall have and enjoy all liberties, franchises, and immunities within any of our other dominions to all intents and purposes as if they had been abiding and born within this our realm of England or any other of our said dominions. They are entitled to all the liberties, the franchises, that is the privileges and immunities, that is, again, referring to the uh, privileges, the rights that were granted to all of those who were citizens living in England. The same ones belonging to those living in England are granted to Those who are called His Majesty's Dominions, as was the colonies. The Charter of New England in 1620 says this Also, we do for us, again, the the we and the us here refer to the crown of England, and we do for us, our heirs and successors, declare by these presents that all and every the persons, being our subjects, which shall go and inhabit within the said colony and plantation, and every of their children and posterity, which shall happen to be born within the limits thereof, shall have and enjoy all liberties and franchises and immunities of free denizens, citizens, in other words, and natural subjects, within any of our other dominions to all intents and purposes as if they had been abiding and born within this our kingdom of England or any other our dominions. The same language used there. Then one last charter as representative of the others, all the others. The Charter of Maryland in 1632. We will also... And of our more abundant grace, again, the crown speaking, for us, our heirs and successors, do firmly charge, constitute, ordain, and command that the said province be of our allegiance, and that all and singular the subjects and liegemen of us, our heirs and successors transplanted or hereafter to be transplanted into the province aforesaid, and the children of them, and of others their descendants, whether already born there, or hereafter to be born. Be and shall be natives and liegemen of us, our heirs and successors of our kingdom, of England and Ireland. And in all things shall be held, treated, reputed, and esteemed as the faithful liegemen of Of us and our heirs and successors, born within our kingdom of England. Also, lands, tenements, revenues, services, and other hereditaments, that is, property that may be inherited, whatsoever within our kingdom of England and other our dominions, to inherit or otherwise purchase, receive, take, have, hold, buy, and possess and the same to use and enjoy, and the same to give, sell, and bequeath, and likewise all privileges, franchises, and liberties of this our kingdom of England, freely, quietly, and peaceably to have and possess, and the same may use and enjoy in the same manner as our liegemen born or to be born within our said kingdom of England, without impediment, molestation, vexation, impeachment, or grievance of us, or any of our heirs or successors, any statute, act, ordinance, or provision to the contrary thereof, notwithstanding. I think from the language that's used in these charters, these covenants, that it should be clear that, first of all, the colonies were His Majesty's dominions, and second, that they were entitled to all the rights, privileges, and liberties that were granted to those living in England. And as I said, the highest, the greatest, the noblest, the best of all, liberties, rights, and privileges was to be in covenant with God. If that nation was in covenant with God. And this covenant between the king and this dominion was established how could that covenant not pass on to them being the greatest the highest the best of the liberties rights and privileges before I close today I would like to make one observation and respond to one objection we're going to have more citations of this nature in the future but uh, in order to keep the sermons at a uh, reasonable length um, we're going to uh, reserve that for later sermons much much historical confirmation of what is here being said but I I want to be selective and uh, again not be tedious in in one particular sermon But I'd like to, uh, again, close by one observation and then one objection. First of all, one observation. These charters are clearly covenantal in that they bind both the king and all his successors to the throne and the residents of these colonies and all of their successors to the terms of this charter. This was even true when the lineage of the crown changed from the Stuarts to the Hanovers. It was even true when the form of government changed from a kingdom with a king to a commonwealth with a Lord Protector under Cromwell it did not alter the relationship between England and the colonies the colonies during the period of the Commonwealth though an entirely different form of government was established the colonies didn't have to renew their charters they didn't say well we were previously a dominion of Britain but now we're not They continued to be a dominion of Britain. No one was up in arms saying that these charters needed to be uh, renegotiated or retaken or taken uh, with regard to the commonwealth for the first time. They were continued as they were. Now, my question is this. If such charters made between earthly rulers and subjects continue... In an unabated obligation and force to posterity in succeeding generations without each person or each generation formally renewing the charter. How much more does the obligation and force of the solemn league and covenant continue to all posterity in succeeding generations? For this is a perpetual covenant with the everlasting God who follows his covenant people wherever they go throughout the whole world and who continues to be their covenant God regardless of the form of government that they may exist under or regardless of their declaration of independence from their mother country. One of the chief liberties and documents that is referred to implied when it speaks of liberties, franchises, indemnities. One of the chief documents that is being specifically referred to that they intended to refer to was the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta which was established in the year 1215, was one of those documents that continued unabated throughout all generations. They didn't even need to cite it specifically. Everyone knew that that was included when it spoke of liberties, franchises, and indemnities that it referred to the, the rights that were in the Magna Carta granting to Englishmen various rights as it pertain to uh, legal procedures. For example, uh, the the right of uh, habeas corpus, the right to know why you are being charged, what is the charge uh, against you, the crime that you have committed. You have a right to know what crime you've committed if you're being charged with violating. A law, uh, the right of appeal. You have a right to appeal. If you have been imprisoned, you have a, a right to appeal to the court to consider this matter. The right of jury by peers. These various rights flow from what was established civilly, in the Magna Carta. Now, twelfth. 15, the year 1215, and it continues unabated to the colonies that are established in the 17th century, the 18th century, and no one raises any question about that. No one has any problem at all with that, that the king, by way of these charters, conveys those liberties, those enfranchisements, and those indemnities, rights and privileges, to the subjects of the crown under his dominion. And yet people are all up in arms when we talk about the king of kings, who has established his covenant with his people, with a nation, that those rights and privileges, that those liberties, would be conveyed to the colonies by way of being included supremely included in the charters. Magna Carta, yes. Solemn, League and Covenant, no. What inconsistencies we see. One would think that it was the greatest punishment on the face of the earth to be in covenant with God. What a sin it is that we so despise being in covenant with god it shows the depravity of our nature the rebellion we have against god that we do not want to be in covenant with him and we make every excuse to to release ourselves to excuse ourselves from being in covenant with god last thing is the one objection and this is the objection Neither the crown nor the subjects of the crown in the colonies understood or intended the liberties, rights, and privileges granted to them to include the Solemn League and Covenant. They didn't intend that. They didn't understand that. And therefore, since they did not intend it, the National Solemn League and Covenant was not included among the liberties, rights, and privileges this is at least a partial response I'm sure we could all upon further meditation come up with a much uh, more extended response but let me give to you uh, in the remaining minutes we have here a response to that objection since this was a covenant between God and man It is not man that has the right to tell God what are the liberties, rights, and privileges of a nation that is bound by the National Solemn League and Covenant. It's not up to man. Whether he intends it or not, it's not up to man. Just as the ten tribes of Israel had no legal right to tell God what liberties, rights, and privileges were theirs under a new charter or constitution, so the crown and the colonies had no right to alter what was the highest and greatest liberty, right, and privilege that belonged to them, namely, to be the covenant people of God. Secondly, as stated earlier, if a human ruler can engage in a charter with a dominion of his that continues unabated to succeeding generations... The sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, everlasting God can engage in a national covenant that extends to all posterity, wherever they may be, and neither the crown nor the subjects can alter that covenant so that it does not apply to them any longer. Thirdly, it is not the intention of man that determines man's duty. But rather the law of God, the covenant of God. The question is not what did the crown and the dominions of the crown intend, but what were they ob- obligated by covenant and law to do? Not what did they actually do de facto. or what did they actually intend de facto, but what were they obligated to do legally de jure, by covenant. They were bound and obligated to own and specifically include in these colonial charters, or amend them if necessary, to make it clear that the highest and greatest liberty, right, and privilege enjoined enjoyed by both crown and subjects of the crown, was to be in covenant with God by means of the National Solemn League and Covenant. The fact that they did not do so was their own sin of covenant breaking. And the guilt upon all who do not own this to be true fell upon them. This was true when the colonial charters were established, and it was likewise true when the Declaration of Independence was signed, but no mention of the obligation to the Solemn League and Covenant, when the Articles of Confederation were signed, but no mention of their duty to be bound to the Solemn League and Covenant, and when the Constitution of the United States was signed, but no mention of of being in covenant with God by way of the solemn league and covenant. Dear ones, when we plead with the people of covenanted nations to turn to Christ, to turn to his covenant mercy, we can and ought to remind them that this is a covenanted nation. We ought not to let them forget that. This is a covenanted nation. Just as we should call our covenanted children to repent of sin and to turn to Christ in light of the external covenant established with them, so it is true of us as a nation. Just as it is an aggravated sin for a covenanted child, to walk rebelliously against God and the covenant established with them. So it is an aggravated sin for a covenanted nation to do so. It may not be our intention as a nation to be God's covenanted people, but it is God's intention. And it is God's will by way of the solemn league and covenant to be in covenant with us. And we find in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, something that should sting and prick the conscience of every one of us. Oh, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The fact that God has established covenant with us, the fact that he has delayed such severe punishment upon this nation, has sent his judgments to warn us, Of our covenant breaking has established covenant keeping churches in this nation at different times who have upheld these very truths is an aggravation of sin on the part of this nation. Our hope, dear ones, and confidence is not in ourselves, never in ourselves, never in our resources. But our hope and confidence is in our covenant-keeping God who will not only restore his ancient people Israel to himself but will also turn the nations to himself and those bound to him previously by national covenants. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our great God and Savior, we come to Thee this day thanking Thee that we are a covenant people. Forgive us for not cherishing and prizing that privilege, that liberty, and that right before Thee more than we have. Our Lord... We pray that Thou would dispel the foolish arguments of men who seek to break off the yoke, break off, O Lord, that by which we are bound to Thee, that Thou would show, Lord, Thy people that we are indeed a rebellious people, that, O God, Thou would humble us before Thee, that Thou would bring, Lord, the leaders of this land to acknowledge the many ways they have broken and violated Thy covenant. We pray, our God, that Thy goodness, in fact, would lead us to repentance. Lord, hear our prayer. Have mercy upon, Lord, Thy covenanted nations. We pray, Lord, upon... Uh, England, Ireland and Scotland and all his majesty's dominions we pray our Father that thou would uh, cause Lord uh, even this blessed covenant of our forefathers to be again acknowledged and owned we pray our God that we would exalt in Jesus Christ that we would place all our confidence in His covenant-keeping and not in our own. For He is our salvation. He is our warrior. He is our defender, our provider, our Savior. And we rest in Him. Amen. This
1: Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450.